Music has a way of moving you. Uh, the song that was sung first this morning, In the Hands of God, by a group named Newsboys. And I remember uh, driving down the road on occasion, and that song would come on the radio. Next thing you know, my window would be down. I'd be singing like crazy. You're amazing. You're amazing, God. We praise you for the things that you have done. And I'm, the window would be down. I'd be just singing at the top of my lungs, and people would probably see me or pull up next to me in my car and wonder, what is wrong with that guy? What is going on? Well, I'm singing about him, about the amazing things that God has done. Thank you, team, for bringing the music this morning. It was beautiful. We are going to be starting a series in the book of Ephesians, clearly an amazing book. And I just, my prayer and my hope and my desire is just to do it justice, to be quite honest with you. I've entitled this first sermon, Just Getting Started. That's what we're going to be doing today. It's going to be about introducing this great book, where are we going with it, why are we here in the first place, and we're going to spend our sermon today is just going to be focusing on the first two verses of chapter one. So it's going to be kind of small uh, emphasis right there, but there's a lot that's said even in the first two verses of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is called The Believer's Bank or The Treasure House of the Bible because this book just unfolds for us in a very beautiful way all of the treasures, all of the blessing, all of the amazing things that we have in Christ Jesus. We're going to see that next week in the next part of chapter 1, but it just unfolds for us how blessed we are and how rich we are as Christians. Sometimes we lose sight of that. We focus more on all of our struggles. We maybe focus on all the things that we need to be doing for Jesus. But the book of Ephesians invites us back into understanding what we have in him, all those treasures. Except for the book of Romans, which I've preached on, which I love, Ephesians is the most carefully written presentation of Christian theology in the Bible, next to the great book of Romans. People have said about Romans, it's the most impressive epistle, but they've said about Ephesians, it's the most elegant epistle. It's the queen of the epistles, that's what it's been referred to. John Calvin said it was his favorite book. Spurgeon says, whoever would see Christianity in one treatise, let him read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the epistle to the Ephesians. So as we go through, let's be doing that. Let's read it, let's mark it, let's learn it, let's inwardly digest this incredible book of Ephesians together. In the category of epistles, it's, it's listed in the category of prison epistles. It's one of four epistles that were written by Paul while he was in prison. At the end of the book of Acts, chapter probably 23 to the 28, Paul was incarcerated. He was in prison, first in Caesarea, then in Rome. And during his time there, he wrote four books, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then Philemon, the short epistle about a slave and a slave owner. And so those are the four books that came out of his prison experience. But what I love about Paul in his book, in fact, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I am a prisoner for the Lord. I'm not a prisoner of Rome. 
I'm not a prisoner because of that people hate me and I'm stuck here in this prison. I'm a prisoner for him. There's a purpose in my incarceration, Paul says. That purpose is to get the gospel out. Prison can't keep him from just speaking about the gospel. That was Paul's heart. That was his desire. Physical distancing couldn't keep him from doing what God called him to do. And I think the same can be said of us today. What's going on in our crazy world? It's crazy. No question about it. We're distanced. We're restricted. All of those things. But you know what? That can't keep us from doing what God has asked us to do. And that is simply this, to live him every day of our lives, to talk about the gospel, to live on mission. We talked about that yesterday at our men's event. God has called us with a mission, and that is to invite other people into a relationship with him. That's what we need to be about. So that is the book of Ephesians. So let's talk about Ephesus, the city of, because that is, after all, the the city that it was written to. Well, Today, Ephesus can be found in modern-day Turkey, right on the coast of the Aegean Sea. It's still there today, and there's a lot of really amazing ruins that are still intact that you can go and visit today. So it's still there in, in Turkey. In Paul's day, it was in the Roman province of Asia, or Asia Minor, it's referred to in Scripture. Paul visited Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey. And it records that for us in Acts 18. He was traveling with Priscilla and Aquila, and he stopped by the city of Ephesus just for a very short time. He was on his way to Jerusalem, and he ended up leaving Priscilla and Aquila there at Ephesus, and he promised that he would return and come back and visit them again, which he did in the next chapter, Acts 19, at the beginning of his third missionary journey, he came back to Ephesus And he spent a very considerable amount of time there, probably as much as three years in Ephesus, which is far and away more than any of the other cities that he had visited, that he established churches in. So Ephesus had a very special place in Paul's heart. Um, While he was there on his third journey, he introduced the Holy Spirit to the people at Ephesus. They had been introduced to the baptism of John. That's all they knew. And Paul came along and said, that's not the complete story. You need to understand it's about Jesus Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit into your lives. And so the Holy Spirit came upon them there at Ephesus. And then it talks about he went into the synagogue and he taught and he got booted out, as he often did. The Jewish leaders didn't appreciate much him preaching about the Messiah, Jesus. So they booted him out of the synagogue And he literally just went across the street to a lecture hall of Tyrannus there. And it says he lectured daily to the people. He just spent day after day after day teaching them about the gospel and about the truth of Jesus Christ. So there was some deep teaching that went on there. Like I mentioned, if you go to Ephesus today, there's a lot of ruins that are still there. In fact, there's a picture here of a ruin that's still there today. It's very beautiful. It's in, still in amazing shape. The pillars are still there, but it's nothing compared to what it was in the day. And this is the temple to Diana or Artemis, same god. Uh, Diana is the Roman name of the god. Artemis is the Greek name. It's goddess of the hunt or the goddess of fertility. And in 
Ephesus was the place where she was worshipped. And it was an incredible structure. It was one of the original, one of the ancient seven wonders of the world in its day. And it's, the pillars are still there. And so when Paul came into Ephesus, back in the book of Acts, we read this story about how he started preaching Jesus. And people started to turn, turning to Christ and abandoning the idolatry of Diana and Artemis. And it says there was a blacksmith, Demetrius, in the city that made his living by creating idols and artifacts to worship Diana and Artemis. And all of a sudden, it was killing his business. People weren't coming and buying the stuff to worship the false gods, the idols. And so he set out with a bunch of people, grabbed people around him, and they started this revolt against the Christians there in Ephesus. And God spared them, but they were persecuted because of the fact they turned and served the living and true God. Then in Acts 20, there's a beautiful passage there. As Paul is making his way to Jerusalem, and in his mind and in his heart, he knows that this might be it. He knows that he might die in Jerusalem. So he does something very interesting in Acts 20. He calls the Ephesian elders from the church to meet him on his way. And there's a beautiful, right at the end of chapter 20 in the book of Acts, there's this beautiful little passage about with Paul and the Ephesian elders. And they're kneeling down on the shore right there at the port. They're praying together. And then there's weeping and hugging and wishing goodbye because Paul was saying, this is it. This might be it. I'll probably never see you again. And then he instructs the Ephesian elders to shepherd the people of God. That's your job as elders. Take care of the flock. Take care of the sheep there in the city of Ephesus. So Paul had a very strong attraction to this incredible city. Um, But here's a question. Was the letter actually written to Ephesus? Now, why do I say that? It's labeled that here in our Bibles, right? Well, If you have an NIV and probably some of the other translations, there's probably a little footnote next to Ephesus there in verse 1 where it's introduced, saying, and it says this, it says, some early manuscripts do not have in Ephesus. Hmm, that's interesting. So the, probably the earliest manuscripts we have actually don't actually have in them in Ephesus. So what's going on? And As you look at the book of Ephesians, you begin to wonder because, first of all, there's no mention of specific individuals in Ephesus. Normally, when Paul writes to a church, he mentions names of people. In fact, the last chapter of most of his books to churches are just filled with names, specific names of people that were in that church in that town. It's nowhere to be found here. In this book, there's only one name mentioned in Ephesus, and it's in the last few verses of the book. It's the name of the gentleman, Tychicus, who took this letter from Paul and delivered it to the churches. So it's interesting. There's no specific issue that's addressed in Ephesus. There's no problem going on at the church. Take, for example, Corinthians, okay? You've got all kinds of issues. You've got lawsuits, You've got immorality. You've got the way that they handled the Lord's table was a disaster 
And so Paul spends most of 1 Corinthians straightening them up, right? It's nowhere to be found in the book of Ephesus. In fact, he speaks in broad general themes of Christian doctrines. It's like he's speaking above this place, Ephesus. He's speaking in broad, very general terms. Now, Paul spent three years there, more than any other church. I mentioned that earlier. So why does he only refer to the people as brethren in general terms? And he says in chapter 1, he says, I've only heard about your faith. Really? Paul, you were there three years. I, th- I think you knew about their faith, right? Well, one view, and I think it makes sense, is that it was a circular letter, meaning this. It was written by Paul to an area with several churches. It would have been exactly the same area as the book of Revelation, those churches in the first few chapters of Revelation, the seven churches. Those same churches were in Asia Minor, including Ephesus. We have Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, and of course Laodicea. All of those churches would have been in that same area around Ephesus. Ephesus is included in Revelation too. It's one of the churches of that area. So the thought is this, that Paul wrote this letter to the churches of Asia Minor. And later on, by 2nd and 3rd century, Ephesus is now attached to this book. So that later on, Ephesus was the largest. Ephesus was the most influential city in that area. Ephesus was the capital. Ephesus was a place where Paul spent most of his time. So the church probably started at Ephesus, or excuse me, the letter probably started there and then went out to the other churches and was taken church by church. And so it's like Paul saying to the church of blank, fill in the blank here, here it is. We have the book of Ephesus. I think we can do that today. Paul's saying to us, look, It was written to these churches, but it's written to you, us, we. We're the church. The same things that were true to them are true to us. You can fill in, in a sense, to the saints who are at Clackamas Bible Church because the same things are going to apply. So most likely a circular letter going to several churches and giving broad general themes that are just beautiful. I've entitled this series, Equipping God's Family for Christian Living. That's kind of the broad theme of the book of Ephesians as we move forward. Equipping God's Family for Christian Living. First of all, God's family. We are God's family. It says so in our mission statement. Here's what our mission statement says. We, we have it on our bulletins. We, we put it on the pre-service slides. We're a family of believers, seeking to glorify God, inviting others to grow with us in an abundant relationship with Jesus Christ through an understanding of grace and truth. We're a family of believers. In the book of Ephesians, there are three metaphors that are going to be used for believers. Number one, and where it starts out, is we're a family. We're a family of God together as Christians. Number two, we're the body of of Christ. We're his body. And number three, we are the indwelling or we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. So those metaphors are used of us, but it starts out with this idea that we are a family 
of believers. We're going to see that very clearly next week as we move forward. Now, we want to equip you. What do I mean by equip? That's, we're going to see as we move through the book of Ephesians, that's a very broad term. And I'm going to go into more detail on that when we get to chapter 4, when it talks about my role as pastor and our role as elders here at Clackamas Bible Church is to equip God's people for works of service. So I'm going to talk more in detail about what that word means. But very specifically, I know it means that we are to encourage and to provide opportunity for you to use the gifts that God has given you to serve Him. In fact, as elders, we sat down and went, okay, we have our mission statement. We're a family of believers, inviting other people to grow with us in an abundant relationship with Jesus Christ, understanding of grace and truth. So how do we break that down? What are some items that we can do? We've got to make that a little bit more specific. And we prioritized things. Number one priority that we felt that God was leading here at Clackamas Bible Church, and we wrote it down, is to encourage growth and the exercise of spiritual gifts of members at CBC. That is our number one priority for this time right now that we're really highlighting. And that's why we chose the book of Ephesians, by the way, because I felt like Ephesians is really the book that focuses the most on that. There are other books, too, but that's why Ephesians came up. We want to encourage you all to grow and greater understanding and a greater opportunity to use the spiritual gifts that have been given to you in service to Christ, in service to each other. And so that's where we're focusing on, and that's going to be one of our, our, it's our number one priority right now. So how do we equip God's family for Christian living? There's a huge question, right? Um, And I can't answer it all today, but I can give you three words that I think summarize how we can equip you, and I think really summarize the book of Ephesians. You, you mean you can summarize the book of Ephesians in three words? Well, kind of. Let me give them to you. And they're in your note taker. And this isn't mine, by the way. I, I stole it, sorry. There's a gentleman many years ago, a theologian called Watchman Nee, and he wrote a classic work on the book of Ephesians. And he said, you can really summarize Ephesians in three words. Sit, walk, Stand. Really? Sit, walk, stand. Okay. Number one, sit. Understanding who we are as believers in Jesus Christ. Sit. Ephesians 2, verse 6 says this. We are seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus the reality and the truth of who we are is we're already seated in the heavenlies. We're sit. It's our position. It's who we are. It's a reality of who we already are in Christ. The first three chapters talk about sit, our position in Christ, who we are, our identity in Christ. There are, there's only one command or imperative in the first three chapters. It's not about what we're to be doing. It's about who we are. What is the one command? I'm glad you asked. 
It's in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. That one command, the one thing in the first three chapters that we're to be doing, and I spoke about this the other Sunday, remember. Remember who you were, people, before Christ. Remember how messed up you were. Remember how dead you were. Remember how lost you were. That's the only command in the first three chapters. So we're to be understanding not what we're to be doing, but what's already been done for us in Jesus Christ. The focus is not what we do for Christ, but what he's already done. That's the first three chapters of the, of the book of Ephesians. Sit. You're seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Just know who you are. Know what's been done for you. Claim your identity. And here's the reality. If we're really going to equip you at, to live this Christian life, it has to start there. It has to start with an understanding of who we are, what our identity is in Jesus Christ. Because here's what happens. And the book of Ephesians moves in the direction of the walk. But I think oftentimes we start with, what are we supposed to be doing? Running around. I gotta be doing, I know I'm supposed to be doing something. And we forget to really think about and understand and really just meditate on who we already are, what Christ has done for us. That's so important as a starting point. So that's where Ephesians starts us, the first three chapters. Sit, that's the word. The second word, walk, starts in chapter 4, verse 1. It says right there in verse 1, and I'm reading out of the New American on this one. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. He spent the first three chapters talking about our calling, who we are in Christ. Now he says, starting in chapter 4 and and chapter 5, those two chapters, he says, now you know who you are, guess what? I want you to walk in a manner worthy of that. It's like your calling here, who you are in Christ, your walk should match up with that. If you're a believer, if you're called to, in Christ to be holy, guess what? Your walk should be holy. So chapters 4 and 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, he's talking about our walk. We walk in unity. That's the first part of chapter 4. Man, be unified. Do whatever it takes to maintain the bond of peace. Secondly, walk in love. Don't forget that, people. Then he goes into talking about how we, how we walk in love. How do we treat each other? That's chapter 4, second half of it. Then chapter 5, that beautiful passage about husbands and why. How do we now walk as married people? Husbands and wives, that beautiful chapter there. Then, how do we walk in our homes? Children, obey your parents. Parents, (laughs) there's something on both sides there. How do you treat your kids in your home? Then, there's a passage that has to do with slaves and masters, employment, our workplace. That's how we kind of take it from their culture into our own. The idea of how do I walk in the workplace where God has placed me with my boss. 
How do I treat maybe people that are working for me, etc.? How does that play itself out? So we are talking about our walk. Now here's something I wanted to point out. Again, I mentioned it. This idea of there's two words, indicative. That's the first one. An indicative verb is something that is true. It's something that is already a reality. That's chapters one through three. That's what was going on there. Then there's the imperative. Imperative is simply command. What are we supposed to be doing? In chapters four and five, there's 35 different commands. It's all about what we're to be doing. It's all about our walk. But here's the reality, is that imperatives, what we're to be doing, are dependent upon indicatives. What do I mean by that? Everything in Scripture that we are told to be doing are to be based upon who we are already in Christ Jesus. Let me give you an example from Paul himself in Philippians 2. He says this, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. He says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Okay, period. Wow, that's pretty ominous. That's okay. What if Paul would have just left it there? He doesn't, does he? Because he goes on. For it is God who is at work or who is working in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So here's the way it works. The imperative, the command is work out your salvation. That's our job. That's our responsibility. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For, there's the word that links it together. It depends on the reality of that God is already at work. That word work now is not an imperative, it's an indicative. It's, it's a reality of what's going on in our lives because of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. God is at work. That's why he says, work out your salvation. Oftentimes, I don't know about you, but I find myself stressing out about the work part. And if we leave it there, we're just going to get tired. We're going to get frustrated. We're going to get burned out. But if we can realize that all that is based upon who we are in Jesus Christ, what he's already done for us, the reality is the power and the will to even do what he's asked us to do, it's already here because of him. He's given us the Holy Spirit, which provides the power. He's given us a the reality that we are righteous. Our sins are gone. They're taken care of. The guilt, the shame, all that is taken away so we can move forward now freely in our service for him. That's the basis for any command that is given in Scripture. We have great privilege, but we also have great responsibility, and that's the message of the book of Ephesians. And Paul does that with his books. He usually starts out with great doctrinal teaching, first part. Second part is practical, more practical. So what do you do with it? Sit, walk, but he doesn't end there, and that's what I love about Ephesians that makes it unique amongst the other books of the New Testament. He has one more word for us, starting in verse 10 of chapter 6. Stand. What, what's going on there, right? Put on the full armor of God so that you can, what? Stand. Take your stand, whatever, against the devil's 
schemes. You have great privilege, you have incredible responsibility to walk in a manner worthy, but guess what? You have an enemy. Walking worthy is not gonna be easy. You have somebody that's out to get you and we need to be aware of that, so you need to learn how to stand, putting on the full armor of God and, t- and learning what kind of schemes the devil's throwing at you, right? That's part of equipping God's people too. To just have people come to Jesus and go, okay, you're on your own, is irresponsible of us, isn't it? Because making disciples of Jesus Christ involves all three of these things. It's a full understanding of who we are. Then it's, okay, how do we walk in this? And let let us walk along with you and help you. And then it's, okay, now that you're walking, now that you're saved, there's somebody who wants to just take you out. You have an enemy there. So here's how you stand in your faith. All three of those. We need to learn how to sit. We need to learn how to walk. We need to learn how to stand in Christ. And that's how we're equipped as the family of God. So let's go to Ephesians. I'm just going to get us started today. The first two verses, and I want you to notice as I read these first two verses, I want you to notice the pairs, and I'm going to highlight them in the first two verses. Again, this sounds very similar to any epistle that Paul writes. They're very similar, but there's some unique things here also to Ephesians. So here's the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me just kind of highlight some of these pairs a little bit. The first one is Paul's dual source of his authority in the first part of verse 1 there. He says, I'm an apostle. I'm an apostle of the Lord, of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. So what does it mean that he's an apostle? That word apostle literally means I am a sent one. That's what that word means. Now you can define it with a small a or a capital A in Scripture. There were those that were sent out from churches. There were those that were sent out as missionaries, etc. There are those that go out today as missionaries. They're sent out people. They're apostles with a small a. But he's talking about an apostle with a capital A. I am one of the apostles. In Scripture, we have approximately 13 of them. If you take the first 12 disciples, then you minus Judas Iscariot, because he betrayed our Lord, and they added Matthias, right, in Acts chapter 1. So there were 12 early on, and then Paul was added later in the book of Acts as an apostle. So what gave him the right to be an apostle? He deals with that issue in 1 Corinthians 9.1. And here's what Paul says about that issue. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? See, apostles need, one of the requirements of an apostle was that they had seen the risen Lord. And Paul mentions that, the fact that he kind of was an apostle that kind of came along later. 
He got to see Jesus a little bit after the fact, but he saw Jesus, the risen Lord, on the way to Damascus. So he fit that requirement. Apostles were also instructed by the Lord to be the foundation of his church and to be the authors of his scripture. And so what we have in our New Testament are the apostles' writings. And they were the ones who went out and established churches in the New Testament. So Paul was this apostle, but he says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, his credentials are not based on his academic training, which he had plenty. The fact that he served as a Pharisee and was in rabbinical leadership, which he was, it was nothing based on his own authority, but only that given to him by God. God the Son, Jesus Christ, God the Father, and his, their authority. He was not boasting. He was simply saying, this has been bestowed upon me by God. That's it. It was, it was given to me. He says, I am an apostle of Jesus. Jesus had corrected him. Jesus had claimed him, and Jesus had commissioned him. That's our story, if you think about it. We were corrected by him. We were saved. We were claimed by him. We're his. We're commissioned. Go make disciples. That was Paul. That was his story. I'm coming to you with the authority of Jesus Christ, but also the will of God. I have a right to speak because it's the will of God. You have a responsibility to listen because it's the will of God. And I have this confidence in my message because I know it's coming from God and not just myself. So there it is. This is Paul's twofold defense of who he was, where it's coming from. So who's it going to? Paul mentions two things about the believers there in Ephesus. Number one, he says, you are God's holy people. That's one of the two titles that he uses there in in the second part of chapter one. You're God's holy people. You are God's saints. That's the word. You are the ones who are set apart. That's what that literally means, holy. Consecrated, set apart for God and his mission and his ministry. That's who you are. According to the New Testament, all Christians are saints. Okay? All Christians are saints. This is how God sees us. This is our identity in Christ. We are not sinners. We are saints. We sin, but sinners is who we were, okay? That's, that's past identity. We're not that. We're in Christ. We are his holy ones. We are saints. So don't refer to yourself as sinners. That's what you do sometimes, unfortunately, but that's not who you are. We are his saints. You're set apart. Now, there's a couple things here to point out about that term, holy people, saints. The idea that in the Old Testament, that word holy ones or consecrated ones was used of the people in Israel, of God's chosen people in the Old Testament. They were set apart to serve God. But later, that same term is used of us the people of God now in the New Testament, now today in the church. So what Paul is saying is God, who they were, Jews, 
is now true of us all, Gentiles included, and that is the body of Christ. We are one in Him, Jews and Gentiles. We're going to see that throughout the book of Ephesians. The word saints has been unfortunately taken and misused a little bit in the Catholic understanding of that word. In the Catholic tradition, to become a saint, okay, number one, you, had to, you have to die. You have to be dead. Number two, you have to perform at least two miracles that are verified as real miracles, okay? Then, thirdly, you have to be voted upon. People have to look at your life, and this council, including the Pope, have to make a decision that, yes, you are a saint, okay? Now, take that understanding of sainthood, and now let's talk about who, what a saint means according to the Bible, okay? Number one, you don't have to be dead to be a saint. You can be alive right now and be a saint, and that's who we are in Christ Jesus. We're living saints, okay? Granted, yes, you're a saint after you pass and go to be with him too, yes, but you can be one now. You don't have to perform miracles. In fact, your life is a miracle, you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The fact that you came to him is in, it, in and of itself is a miracle. You don't have to go out and perform them. Thirdly, you do not have to be voted upon by anybody here on this earth, okay? It's God's designation of who you are as his saint. It's what God does. And here's a fourth difference between their saint and ours, okay? With their saints, they are to be worshipped, revered, and prayed to. You see where I'm going with this? The only one who's to be revered, worshiped, and prayed to is God. Not us. I don't want, you know, I don't want anybody revering me, worshiping me, praying to me. That's not what it's about, okay? It's about worshiping Him. We are to be lights to draw people into that worship, yes. But man, so that's what saint means. But there's a third little piece involved with this word. It's a plural term of the 67 uses of the word in the Bible. All of them are plural in their usage. So why is that important? It's because of this. When we are saved, when we become saints, we're in a community of believers. We are serving as saints together with others. People say to me, I'm a Christian, so therefore I don't need to go to church. I understand what they're saying. They're saying this. Church attendance is not required for salvation. That is true. It's not. But I would argue this. By saying that, you're totally misunderstanding who you are in Christ. You are a saint. We are saints, plural. We're together in this. We are a community. That's our calling, you can't do that individually all by your lonesome out there apart from us. You are the body of Christ. That's what the church is, right? How can you say, I'm part of the body of Christ, but I'm not associated with the body of Christ? That doesn't make any sense. So it's a plural term. Keep that in mind as we go through the book of Ephesians. We're going to be talking about who we are, what we're to be doing, how we're to be standing against Satan and his schemes, right? It's a plural term. 
you're saints, you're holy people, but you're faithful. I love that term there. The word can be active meaning, meaning somebody who has faith. So you're people who have expressed faith in Christ, and that's true. Or it can be passive, meaning you're faithful in the way that you're living. You've expressed faith, you're living faithfully. How about if it's both? Those of you that are, have expressed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and now you're living faithfully as Christians. I think that's really what is going on here. You see, saints, holy people, is how God sees us. Faithful is how we see each other. I look at your life, you look at my life, and you go, you can see evidence of a faithful life. You can see evidence of faith being lived out. It's the book of James. Faith without works, dead. Rome, Romans says, hey, we're saved on the basis of faith alone, right? Both are very true. It's a beautiful combination of faith is what starts it out, but you know what? It comes out in our living. You're faithful people. I've seen that in you as people of God. That's how I see you, Paul says. It's just this beautiful thing. In the first half of the book, I think it summarizes Ephesians very well. In the first three chapters, you're saints. It's what's already been done. Second half of the book, it's what you're to be doing. You're faithful. You're living it out. You're walking faithfully and trusting God. Now, where are these people at? They're in two places. How's that sound? Look at verse, the end of verse 1. These, same, these saints seem to be two places at once. They're in Ephesus. That's their physical locale. But more importantly, they're in Christ Jesus. So they're in Ephesus, the physical locale. That's where you're at on this earth. Christians live in the real world, don't we? We're seated in the heavenlies, but you know what? We live in the real world too. We live in the mess that's down here. We're called to impact our culture, to be lights in darkness, to be a living witness of the gospel to people around us. We're in the world, we're not of it. That's not our calling. In spite of their culture, Paul is saying, I know where you live. I know what's going on in Ephesus. So what's going on in Ephesus? Well, if you go there today, you can still see evidences of it. There is still there today, there's a statue to one of the Roman rulers, Trajan, who was an emperor. And during that time, and when Paul was writing this book, the Romans were in charge, and they encouraged emperor worship. The emperor was God, and they encouraged people to worship them as such. So that was going on in their culture, emperor worship. Then you have the temple that we saw earlier to Diana idolatry, worshiping these false gods, images, all of the things associated with, the, with that. And if that wasn't enough, there was immorality. You can go there today and there's a, there's a sign carved in stone on the road from the main port of Ephesus into kind of the downtown area that's encouraging the patrons, the men coming out of the ships there to go to the brothels in downtown Ephesus. The evidences of immorality of the city of Ephesus are still there today, and you can see them. 
So you've got all these things in their culture. And the question is, how can you live as a saint in that? I would say this, how can we live as saints in this? Portland, right? (laughs) By God's grace, by God's power, that's how we can live as saints in this place that God has placed us. We're here for a reason, and that is to impact this culture. That is to live the gospel. That is to trust him in the middle of the mess. So they're very much in Ephesus. We're very much in Clackamas slash Portland today. But don't miss this. They are in Christ Jesus, more importantly than that. This term, this idea of being in Christ Jesus is really the theme of Ephesus. It's used 35 times throughout this book. It is the core understanding, the core truth that Paul wants them to know. You are in Christ. You've not only put your faith in him, but you live in him. By being in Christ, what Paul is saying is you're united to Christ, you're identified with Christ, you're one with Christ and his people, all of those things. And next week we get to see all of the blessings we have in Christ Jesus. That's it. That's who we are. That is our spiritual status. You and I, we are in Christ Jesus. If there's anything we could emphasize today, it's that. But that's the story of our lives, isn't it? Two spheres. We live here. We're on this earth. Guess what? But yet, we're His. We're in Him. In the spiritual world. In the reality of who we are. They're saints because they belong to God. They're faithful because they're following God and living out their faith in front of people and being obedient. But they're living in two realities. The physical reality and the spiritual reality in Ephesus, in Christ. But there's this dual blessing that Paul brings up in verse 2. And this is common to Paul in his epistles. He uses these two words pretty much all the way through his epistles with rare exception. Two words, grace, peace. Grace, charis, that word charis. What Paul was doing here is taking a Gentile word, and combining it with a Jewish word, and I'll explain that, and saying, bringing them together, we're the body of Christ both, Gentile, Jewish. The Gentile word would, in their day, in the Gentile culture, there was a word, charon. It was, it meant, blessed are you, uh, rejoice, hello. It was a greeting that was used by, in the Gentile culture, person to person, So Paul took that and just tweaked it a little bit and took the cognate form and made it into charis, which is grace. It's God's free gift to you of his grace. I love that. He went from hello to every time he met, he would say grace to you. Yes, that's the basis of our relationship with God, isn't it? His grace, that and that alone. But then he brings in a very Hebrew word, shalom, peace. May God grant you peace. It's a relationship word. It involves this idea of completeness and right relationship. When, you, when everything is working the way it should, there's shalom. Everybody's in right relationship. There's completeness. 
Everything is just in this beautiful order. It's shalom. That's what the Hebrews understood. And what Paul is saying is that when you understand grace, it brings you into right relationship and you have shalom. Completeness, right relationship with God and with others. That's the story of Ephesians. Again, I got to understand God's grace. Then when I get that, it leads to the fruit of peace. Grace and peace to you all. But then he ends with this dual source of blessing, and I love this. It comes from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. God, our Father. That Greek word for Father, Pater, P-A-T-E-R. The idea there is the Father is the one who gives life. The Father is the head of the house. The Father is the one who you're named after. Even in our culture today, when we do weddings, for example, it's the male. It's the Father's name that is passed on in weddings, right? It's that idea that God, our Father, has given us our name. We're in His family. We get life from Him. Both our physical life, He's our creator, yes, but He is also our spiritual Father. We get spiritual life through Him. And we're in His family with all of His blessings in our hand. That's what Paul is referring to here. This is incredible blessing that comes when we understand we're a part of God's family, God the Father. But then he says, but the Lord Jesus Christ. There are three names there of Jesus that are the story of Paul's life. In Acts chapter 9, you see these three play out. Let me read a couple verses out of Acts 9. When, when Paul first met Jesus on the road to Damascus, Here's verses 4 and 5 from Acts 9. Here's the account. Paul, Saul at that point actually, before he became Paul, but he fell to the ground, heard a voice to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Whoa. Who are you, Lord? It started out with an understanding that something's going to change here. <laughs> he was sent under the authority of the Jewish rulers in Jerusalem to go get those Christians. Now he met a different Lord. Who are you, Lord? Paul's going to grow in his understanding of Lord, trust me. But then Jesus, because that's exactly who Jesus identified himself as. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Instead of an enemy, he now sees Jesus as someone to follow. That's who he's going to see Jesus as. Instead of someone who's dead, who had been killed, he's going to see Jesus as a risen and reigning Savior. I am Jesus. I'm no longer your enemy. I'm going to be your Lord and Savior, Paul. But it doesn't end there. He comes to understand and know Jesus as Christ. Messiah. Look what it says in Acts 9.22. Later on, he's taken blinded into the town and he's instructed there. Saul grew more and more powerful and he baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving 
that Jesus is the Christ, or he is the Messiah, same word, anointed one. Lord Jesus, Messiah Christ. Paul had to learn all over again who Jesus was, and he went back into the Old Testament, and he came to understand that all those things that were speaking of the Messiah then in the Old Testament are true of Jesus. He fulfilled all of that, and he then became the biggest proponent of the reality of Jesus as Messiah. So I just want to end with this and tie it into us here today. And I'll just read this out of one of the commentaries. I thought it was fantastic. It says, the Ephesian Christians were marginalized. Does that sound familiar? In a pluralistic culture, tolerant of many things. Sound familiar? But not of the Christian gospel or the church which proclaimed it. They needed to know that they were secure. Paul teaches them that they are anchored in the eternal purposes of God. They lived under the threat of dark and sinister powers. They needed to know that Christ had conquered all his and their enemies. They were surrounded by the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil. They needed to know that God had raised them out of that spiritual death. They were confronted on a daily basis with Gentile paganism. They needed to know that Christ had brought them into the family of God. They lived under the shadow of a false temple and a false idol. They needed to know that they were the true temple of God. They lived in an ungodly society. They needed to know how the gospel would transform their lives. They saw life and marriage, family, business corrupted by self-interest. They needed to know how grace could transform all relationships. They were under attack from the forces of darkness. They needed to know how they could remain standing in the battle. My prayer for us as we go through this great book of Ephesians is right here, that regardless of the culture that we're in, we're marginalized, we live in dark days, but there's so much truth in this great book that we can understand and conquer what's going on around us. And I just pray that this book would work that in the lives of all of you. God bless. Amen.